But it's really been a joy to be here. My family and I worshipped for years at uh, Beth Messiah Congregation in Livingston, New Jersey. And uh, when... Yeah? All right, there we go. Okay, so... Um, uh, when, when they, they heard we were coming and, and that Gary was here, they just said, go. <laughs> I said, well, but... No, I said, no, 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 just go. Just, it doesn't matter. You don't have any other questions. Just go. You don't have any other choice also. So, so we're here. And uh, it's really been nice. I want to... Um, I do want to thank you for welcoming us. Many of you came and, and spoke to us, and, and so it's been fun. My daughter, Talia, is already involved in the dance you know she's from day one she was here so yeah so um and it it is kind of nice i will say for uh gary to have invited me to come and speak on of all times simcha torah because my last name is sofer which means scribe so our family way back when would have been the family would have been the people who would have written the torah scrolls so my, my family uh, is not European. We didn't grow up with locks and bagels. Uh, my dad grew up in India, and our family goes back to Iraq and, and Iran. And so uh, we are uh, Sephardic Jews, and uh, our, our job in the family would have been to, uh, to write the scrolls that would have been marched around the synagogues. And so of all uh, holidays, it's probably a good one to have a so fair bring a message. So... Um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Simcha Torah, and then I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Word. But, but just to kind of give you a little bit of an overview, I thought I'd do something kind of interesting. And um, I, I have a little PowerPoint, and um, it's just going to show you a couple of things. And uh, in, when, we, when we look at the Bible and we read the Scripture, uh, we know that this is the Word of God. And there, are, there is evidence archaeology, history doesn't, doesn't inform our faith. We don't believe because of archaeology. But it is nice when archaeology confirms what it is that we believe, huh? So, um, so Numbers chapter 6, 22 to 27 is a very familiar passage. Um, uh, is the Aaronic benediction. Psalm 67 that we read, which was uh, a, a wonderful passage, is the psalmist's understanding of that passage. If you just go to the next one, um, I want to tell you a story about this guy. This guy is named Gar- Gabriel Barquet, not a believer in Jesus, an Israeli archaeologist, uh, really an amazing scholar, has done a lot of work in Israel and uh, in uncovering different things. We go to the next slide. And was uh, digging in an area called the City of David. And if you've been to Israel, if you've been to Jerusalem, you'll know Jerusalem sits on a hill. Uh, the old city is kind of on a hill, and the Temple Mount's on, on an, the top of that hill. And uh, there's an area that is, is kind of going down into the Kidron Valley, that is outside the walls of the old city of Jerusalem called the city of David. You can go to the next slide. And it's hard to see, but there you can see the Dome of the Rock. Uh, and the circle there is, is called the city of David. This is the oldest part of, of Jerusalem. And this is the area where uh, David would have lived. So it was, it was, it was very old. 
And so he was digging. You go to the next one. Okay, so this is a funny little... So they were digging. Um, he was uh, working with a group of Israeli teenagers. And they were digging out uh, a burial area in the city of David. There's been a lot of excavation. A lot of people still live there. And he was digging. And this is, gives you a sense of what they were doing. And there was one kid. Uh, he was about 14 years old. And um, he was really being a pain in the neck, and, and as some 14-year-olds can. But he was just, he was bored, and he wanted to get involved, he wanted to do stuff. And so he became so annoying to Gabriel Barquet that he basically said, okay, fine, here, here's a bucket, here's a shovel, I want you to go fill this bucket with dirt. And he said, where? And he, he basically said, as far away from me as you can get. And so, so, and he went, okay. So he went, da-da-da-da, and he, he's back. And so he comes back, and he, you know, he says, Mr., uh, whatever he says, you know, Mr. Barquet, or, and he, he, uh, he says, you know, I found this thing. And he says, what? And, and he shows him a statue and immediately recognized that. And he found that this kid had unearthed a certain part of this burial chamber that no one had ever seen before. And it was a, a, uh, a ceiling that had collapsed, right? And it, you know in Israel it's layer upon layer upon layer, okay? So they go and they dig and they excavate out. And you can go to the next slide. Let's see what it says. Okay, so they found something that was uh, in a... found a lot. And what, but one of the things they found was a small scroll about the size of a cigarette butt that was rolled and it was metal. They didn't know what it was. It was, an, it was kind of like an amulet. You can go to the next one. There you go. It's about, that's the size of it. Go to the next one. And it was an amulet like that that was likely worn as a necklace. And uh, they knew that this, this area that they found was pre-exilic which means that it dated back to the 6th century B.C., before the Babylonian exile. And many scholars up until that thought that the, the Torah, the Bible, was really created in Babylon <laughs> by us, um, by my family, right? And they, they kind of came up with it. But never, no one really thought that these things existed before the exile in a certain community of scholars. And they found this. It took them a couple of years to unroll it without it breaking. And what they found written on this scroll were these words. Yivarecha Adonai v'yishmarecha. Ya'er Adonai panavalecha v'yichunecha. V'yisem shalom. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May his face shine upon you. And these words are the oldest existing part of the Bible in all the world. And uh, it was worn as an amulet by somebody, sometime. But that those words that we say at the end of the service, those words that we bless our children with, those words that we take such great comfort, that these words have been preserved by God far beyond what anyone would have thought. The Bible was not a game of telephone. Where somebody said to somebody, and somebody said to somebody, and somebody said to somebody, and by the end of the game, it's a completely different message. No. 
it's the same message. Because when these books were written, they were written and copied letter by letter. It takes about a year to write a Torah scroll. So this is just something interesting. I thought on, on, on uh, uh, Simcha Torah, it would be a great time to, to talk about this. And that's, um, if you want to look it up online, you could Google it afterwards. So there you go. Okay, so that's, I'm done with that. Thank you. So Simcha Torah, let me uh, just give you a little bit of a background. Simcha Torah, of all the high holidays, is the most rabbinic. There's nothing in the Bible that you will find about Simcha Torah. You, we have Rosh Hashanah or, or Feast of Trumpets. We have uh, Yom Kippur. We have Simcha Torah. We even have Shemini Atzeret, the, the eighth day. But we don't have anything about uh, Simcha Torah. So where to come from? Now, there's been a reading of the cyclical, you know, the cyclical reading where you read through all the Torah portions from about the 3rd or 4th century. So that's been going on. And I'm sure that they would have had some sort of a celebration when they finished. But the holiday of Simcha Torah only goes back a couple of hundred years. And it goes back to the, the 1400s is the earliest time that people start writing about it. And it was a, really it was a celebration of this cycle. Um, dancing is very common. Uh, people will, today people will, uh, particularly in Israel, they'll make special hats for Simcha Torah. And there's usually small little Torah scrolls that the kids will use and will march around. And, and uh, actually, and really importantly, Simcha Torah is a time that in religious communities and orthodox synagogues, men will go to other synagogues. And it's probably one of the times, one of the few times in the year that you will have a variety of people in various synagogues. And it's a great uh, thing to think that Jews for Jesus can come and speak here at Beth Ariel on a day like today. You know the old joke about the guy on the desert island? Okay, I'm just throwing this one in for fun. Guy's on a desert island, Jewish guy, for 20 years. Finally gets discovered. And uh, the people who discover him show him all the things that he built. Or he says, let me, let me show you all that I built. Here's, the, here's where I live, and here's my, my kitchen, and here's the workshop, and here's my library. And then down by the water on this island, there's two small buildings. And uh, the guy says, what are those two sm small buildings? And he says, oh, well, those are the synagogues. Why are there two? He says, well, that's the synagogue I go to. That synagogue? I wouldn't be caught dead going to that synagogue. So there you go. Doesn't have to be that way. Okay, so, but, but really, the, the holiday of, Sim, of Simcha Torah is built most, even more than the reading, is built on the idea of a wedding. In Jewish tradition, oh, in a, a wedding ceremony in ancient times, there would be a ceremony and there would be a five-day or seven-day honeymoon. And at the end of that seven-day honeymoon, there would be another party, an even bigger party. And that, that was the day that the bride and the bridegroom would come out of the wedding chamber and they would celebrate with their, their friends and they would celebrate with their family and their, their marriage has been brought together and now they are husband and wife. And it's that idea 
that is the basis for Simcha Torah. The readers at the end, the reader for the last passage of Deuteronomy and the first passage of Genesis are called the bridegroom of the Torah and the bridegroom of Genesis. And that the Torah itself is considered the bride of the Jewish people. And there's this idea of great joy. You read about lots and lots of joy for this holiday, Simcha Torah. And, and it's, it is from this idea that we get uh, the writings. Most of the, the, the rabbinic and traditional writings that you find about Simcha Torah come from more mystical traditions where they write about the Torah as the bride and the people as the bridegroom. Interesting, interesting stuff. It's a fun holiday. Um, it's, it's a holiday that it really is full of joy. Uh, it raises an interesting question, I think, for Messianic Jews about how to relate to some of these holidays because, uh, you know, Rosh Hashanah, uh, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, those are all, you know, they're in the Bible. And so it makes sense that we connect with them. But this one is uh, completely out of Scripture. And so how do we, as Jewish believers and as non-Jewish believers, relate to these holidays that are purely rabbinic? And there's a variety of different uh, answers that people have. Some people say, no, we don't do it. It's not in the Bible, we don't do it. It's not there. Uh, Some people will talk about this in terms of kosher. They'll say, I keep biblical kosher, right? I won't eat a Baconator. A cheeseburger, though, is fine, right? So, so, okay, so that's one solution, right? If it's not in the Bible, we won't do it. Some say, yes, not only will you do it, you must do it. But as, as the Messianic community, we are part of the broader Jewish community, and we need to do everything. And basically, the idea is, if they do it down the street, at Beth, whatever, 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 we do it too. That's another solution, right? Uh, some would say, if Jesus did it, we should do it. We want to be like Jesus, right? So if he did it, we should do it. Okay, that's another solution. Some would say, uh, if we keep the things that are not, we should keep things that are not in direct uh, conflict with Scripture and look to keep, uh, uh, keep as much as possible, realizing that much of the celebration is cultural. Now, there, there are probably here in this room people who would fall into all of these categories. And that's okay. I don't know what the answer is. I can tell you what the answer is for me. Now, I probably lean toward this last one most of all. This is maybe a good example. I'm wearing a yarmulke today or a kippah. Now, is this in the Bible? No, it's not. This is the equivalent of a yellow star. Jews in Europe were commanded, as were Muslims, to wear head coverings. And they had different kinds, so people could know who they were. And this is where this comes from. Am I wearing one? Yeah. And as my hair recedes, I particularly like the bigger ones, because for me, I can have a yarmulke-sized sunburn now that I'm in, in Los Angeles. So... For this, I am grateful. For this, I am grateful. So answering those questions, first of all, I'd say is, is, a, is kind of a tricky one. And navigating through is, is difficult because the, the holidays are both cultural and religious, right? 
And how do you separate them? I have no idea. But, uh, yeah, I'm glad I clarified that for you. But I will say, I will say this is that as followers of the Messiah, the one thing that we do know is that all of Scripture, all of Scripture points to the coming Messiah. All of Scripture brings us together around this idea that the Messiah is promised and that the Messiah will come. And the New Testament tells us the story that the Messiah has come. The New Testament is just as much Scripture... (laughs) as the old, and we need to remember that. We in Jews for Jesus recently had a tragedy. One of our, um, one of our, and my own uh, great friend and mentor, um, Jan Moskowitz, recently passed away. And uh, if, if some of, I'm, I'm sure that some of you have knew him or, or heard of him or, and um, you know, uh, Jan was an amazing guy, and, and one of the things about Jan is love the scriptures, and Jan would often tell a story that's been retold a lot and I think is Im- important on a holiday like, like Simchator. Jan said, you know, you got to think about the Bible in different ways. And, and he says, I like to think about the Bible as kind of like a cookbook. And so the Bible is a cookbook, and it's full of a lot of different recipes. And just like you would go and you go to Barnes Noble or whatever and you buy a cookbook, you buy a cookbook based around a theme. So if you buy a cookbook, an Italian cookbook, it's Italian food. If you a Chinese cookbook, it's Chinese food. But if you buy a cookbook that is a pepper cookbook, every, every recipe in some way or another is going to be about pepper. And that the Bible is a cookbook that's really about Jesus. It's really about the Messiah. So in every way, in every place, it's really about the Messiah. And just like if you were reading a cookbook that was about pepper, the real message of, uh, the real thing you need to do is, with cooking is the, the worst thing you could do is what? Forget the pepper. So when you read the Bible, don't forget the pepper. When you celebrate holidays, don't forget the Messiah. Well, the passages of Scripture that uh, we read this morning, and I appreciate that Jerry read a variety of different passages, because when you want to read something about the Bible, uh, the Word of God in the Bible, you could just go to a million passages. But there's one that particularly speaks to me, and this is what I'd like to talk to you about, which is Psalm 19. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up with me to Psalm 19, and we're going to look at it. There's uh, three distinct passages And uh, we're going to look at this together a little bit. Psalm 19. I'm going to read the first seven verses. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, the heavens, show his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech that... Uh, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his bride chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its, uh, its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit is to the other end. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, 
The passage begins not necessarily with the word of God, but even the most basic communication that God has given. That from the heavens, the heavens are not just there passively showing God's presence, but they declare the fact that you and I exist, the fact that we can look to the sky and see the stars, we could look down to the ground and see the ground, these things proclaim, they scream that God is. We are not an accident. This is more than just a certain kind of assembly of molecules. We are more than that. The wor- and it's not just us. The world is more than that. This is God's place. We are created by God. The stars in the heavens declare that he is. And there's this great idea here. Uh, I love it. Where it says that there is no speech or no language where their voice isn't heard. And then he says, and their line has gone out to the, uh, through uh, all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, this, this idea of line is, is quite amazing. Um, a lot of people will talk about this as a measuring line, kind of like a tape measure, right? And so somehow God is measuring the heavens. And though, though that's true in different areas, there's another way that you can read this idea of line, and it's like a guitar string. It's a harp string. The same word, uh, uh, kav, which is here for line, can be used for the string of a musical instrument. And the, the psalmist is saying is that that string stretches all the way across the entire universe. My father was telling me that he recently had a conversation with a, a scientist who works on the new space telescope, the new Hubble uh, that's in space, it's now working on, they, their entire project is based on one twentieth of the Milky Way. That's all it will ever look at. Last week, they discovered a new galaxy. <laughs> that's where the galaxy was. Yeah. <laughs> But the world is much bigger than we, than we know. And God's line, and in a real sense, the psalmist is saying that God is opening up a line of communication to all people everywhere. And God opens up his line of communication to us. Because his presence doesn't just show us information. His presence asks us for a response and it gives us what this, that, that this is kind of like a guy that just got married, <laughs> who's happy, who comes out on his wedding day and is just thrilled and running around. Uh, and particularly, I love this last part, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. <laughs> the heat is about the guy. He just got married. Okay, so... You know, that, that this is the kind of passion that God has for knowing us and communicating his reality and his truth to us. There is a proclamation of that that is happening every single day. 
and it still happens today. The next part of the passage is an organizing principle. I had a conversation with a woman a few weeks ago here in Los Angeles um, who is not a believer, uh, really not any, anything religious at all, was struggling to read the Bible, and she said, I started in Genesis, and I didn't really understand what to do, and I said, you know, let me give you a piece of advice. Don't start in Genesis. Start in the table of contents. <laughs> And, and I said, you know, the way the Bible is organized gives you an understanding and a picture of how you're supposed to understand it. And that's what the psalmist does. He uses six words. Law, testimony, statutes, commandments, fear, and judgment. This is how the psalmist organizes and understands the whole revelation of God. Now, law, Torah. Okay, these are, well, Torah. Well, I'll just say the words in Hebrew. Torah. Edut, pekude, mitzvot, yirah, and mishpat. Now, some of these words might be more familiar than others, but in a, in a sense, what the, what the psalmist is doing is breaking it down into into smaller pieces so that we can understand how this goes. The psalmist is doing theology. That's what theology is. It's putting it in a, in a way that we can understand. Let's talk about, you know, let's talk about God's revelation and how we can understand it. Let's talk about the uh, the way in which a person comes to understand faith. Salvation. Let's talk about what happens at the end of days. The psalmist isn't doing anything different here. That's exactly what's going on. We all do this, don't we? You have to. Today we hear words like inerrant, inspired. You hear New Testament. You hear Old Testament. You hear prophets, writings, Torah, New Covenant, New Testament, Brit Hadashah. There's all kinds of ways that we organize the scripture. But the way that you organize the Bible in your own mind is the way you do theology. And you all do it. Everybody does it. If you say, you know, the Bible is a great way for me to understand how it is that I can be a better person in the world. You're doing theology, and you're saying that the theology that you believe is about morals. And that's part of it. Not all of it, but that's part of it. And so, the way we do this is critically important. Because you're, you're creating a way that you can look at and understand the Scripture. When we do this, as believers... I'm going to go back to my friend Jan's words. The one thing we cannot forget is the Messiah. The one thing we can't forget is the pepper. Because when we look at the scripture, we have to understand that all of this is pointing towards something in the future, particularly in the book of Psalms. The psalmist is writing and he's telling you how he understands these words and he's putting them into practice. He says the law is perfect. It converts the soul. 
The testimony is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are more desired than gold. Moreover, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them there is great reward. I will tell you, we all have, as followers of the Messiah, a responsibility to do theology and to do it well. We can't leave it to the leaders. We all do it on a day-to-day basis. How is it that we understand the Scripture? First of all, it's true. Not because they found an amulet in a burial chamber. It's nice to see it. But we know it's true because it is the Word of God. We know we can trust it. The Bible was not created in some backroom office by a bunch of guys smoking cigars. I don't know if they were smoking cigars, actually, but, but my guess is they probably weren't. But the idea is that it, it wasn't fabricated. Whenever you read the histories of how the Bible came together, they all say, and these were the books that everybody agreed upon. Nobody came out of the back room and said, okay, we have the Bible, boom, here you go, you've never seen it before, and now you have to follow it. It never happened that way. These were the books that everybody agreed were the Word of God. But we all have to do this. And what's the response? That's the last part of this passage from verse 12 to 14. Who can understand his errors? This is what happens when you actually start looking at the Scripture. What do you discover? Your own sin. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Sounds like the alchet, huh? Let them have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and I will be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. When we look at the scripture, when we look at what God has, when we look at his laws, his judgments, the first thing and the most glaring thing that comes to us is how much we fall short. That we do not measure up to what God asks of us. That we know we don't even measure up of what we ask of us. Okay, we don't feel like we can follow God's rules. Fine. Can we even follow ours? No. The secret sins. The presumptuous, the presumptuousness in our own hearts. And we all know it well. That the psalmist recognizes that when we look at the scripture and when we look at what God is, when we look deeply into his word, what we find first and foremost is our own sinfulness. And verse 14 gives you the picture of the best that can happen 
at this point is hope. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. But today, we have good news. Today, we have news that tells us something different. That we have more than just hope. We can have confidence. Because the New Testament tells us in words that you know well, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, He was with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And in verse 14, and that word became flesh. That word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Today, when we read the scripture, I don't know about you, I have the same experience as the psalmist. I see the inadequacies in myself. I see the inconsistencies. And it's difficult at times. But what we do have in, in the Messiah, we do have the, the Word, God's Word, that became flesh and dwelt among us and revealed to us the grace of God. That in the midst of our own sinfulness, He has poured out his grace that we can have more than hope that we can have confidence that God has heard us that God has taken our sinfulness and as he died for us in our place paid the penalty that was due us Simcha Torah is maybe the holiday that, that, as believers, can be most about Jesus, most about the Messiah. Because what we know is that God, God's Word, all of it, not just His Torah, all of it, became flesh and dwelt among us and revealed to us His grace, His true joy, The question then becomes, what do we do with that? Well, for some of us, we, we first need to acknowledge that the Bible does speak to us about our own sinfulness. That's, that's for some of us, we need to acknowledge that we're living in a life of sinfulness and presumption. And we need to, we need to kind of, you need to say, okay, okay, I accept it. You know, when we talk about repentance, the first thing comes when we recognize that we need to turn. And for some of us, we need to come to that place. And in that place, there is grace. There is somebody that says, yes, you have sinned, but I am not going to reject you. In fact, I want to know you. For some of you also, 
that as we go on in our lives and as we continue to read the word of God and we continue to see that God's word is showing us our own our own sinfulness, we need to trust. Not that we kind of have this ongoing conversion process, but we need to realize that the word of God continues to speak to our lives. And it's about confidence. There is not a God that's in heaven waiting for you to blow it. Hoping that you will blow it. So he can come down and smite you. Right? Smite. Not a very Jewish word, smite. But But some of you believe this. Some of you believe, you know what? If everybody knew how screwed up I was, they would realize it, and they would go, you know, I never liked that person anyway. I always knew there was something weird about them, and finally I get the chance to kick them out of whatever is my club. Some of you believe that about yourself, and it's not true. (laughs) From the very creation of the world, God has sent out this line of communication so that, among other people, he might speak to you and he might speak to me. And on Simchat Torah, the joy that we can have is that the God of history, the God of our people, the God that brought our people out of Egypt, the God that preserved Scripture, the God that uh, uh, brought our people into the land of Israel, the God that has preserved our people through the Holocaust and through Purim and through all of these things, that God still cares about you and about me. Amazingly. And maybe the message for you on this Simcha Torah is that you can believe that. Is that you truly can have joy that the word of God has become flesh and invites you to know him. That's something that we can all have great joy in. Amen.